0: We'll be reading this morning from Joel chapter 1, considering verse 13 to 20, for our Old Testament text, and for our New Testament text, we'll be reading from Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 26. Continuing on in this series in Joel, considering what happens after this proclamation of locust judgment, what comes next? What does Joel say to the people after that? Joel chapter 1, verses 13 to 20. This is the holy, inspired word of God. Let us listen with reverence and with awe. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar, go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not food cut off from before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up, how the beasts groan, the herd of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them, even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Now we'll turn to Acts chapter three verses 11 to 26. Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 26. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But What God foretold by the mouth of all of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom you must receive until the time for restoring of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, these are indeed strange words, words unfit for this kingdom, words that come into a sinful age, words that are foreign to our sinful nature. And yet we ask by your spirit and by your power, as you promised in accordance with your words, that you would aid us to ingest these words, to make them our own, that they might encourage us in our life of faith. For we ask it by the power of Jesus. Amen. What happens when God opens eyes what happens following the word of judgment where Joel calls the people in the first 13 verses, 12 verses, to perceive what's going on around them. I am convinced more and more as I study the book of Joel that this is really a worship liturgy. It's a liturgy that addresses a worship crisis. There is a call to open your eyes, to view what's going on. Then you get our text today, a call to repentance. Repentance the people's response, their own acknowledgement of what's going on, their own repentance. Then you have the prophet Joel, as it were, taking on behalf of himself as this corporate figure, a prayer on behalf of the people, calling out to the Lord. In the text that follows, you have a word from the Lord again. The people confess. And then God pronounces blessing upon blessing upon blessing in prophetic word throughout the rest of the book. Sounds a lot like the structure of our services, doesn't it? Joel is addressing a worship crisis in liturgical form. And as he does so, he tells a story. It's not just a prophetic word absent of a story. It tells us something. It's a narrative, as it were. And ultimately, what we see in this call to repentance in the people's response to that call and in Joel's prayer in these eight verses is how Jesus is the answer to the plight of the problem that they were experiencing with regard to their worship. How Jesus corrects the very needs that they had, the very insufficiencies that they had. How he answers their call and cries to him. And we'll do that this morning in three ways. Joel calls the people, the people cry out, Jesus answers. So first, Joel calls the people Well, having opened the eyes of the people, in verses in 13 13 to 14, Joel then moves to call them out to repentance and lament. And so first he addresses the priests, and he tells them to put on sackcloth. Now, sackcloth were strips of clothing, strips, strips of cloth that you tie around your waist, and they reflect both contrition as well as grief and repentance. Now, this is quite a different picture from normal priestly ornamental clothing quite the image to go from resplendent priestly clothes, colors that pop, all of these beautiful adornments, as it were, to an image of a very meek, unadorned appearance, as though poor and inglorious before the Lord, as beggars. So in pun-like manner, he tells these, those who he commanded to put on sackcloth, he calls them the ministers of the altar. So these are not just any average kind of servicemen. These are the the, the very people who manage the people's encounter with God and were responsible for representing the people to God, maintaining a joyful and blessed relationship between him and them of joy and praise so that God will look upon them with favor and so that they would be accepted in his sight. But there's an irony here. They were ministers of a bloody altar, and it was that altar that was the crux of the people's enjoyment and uh, maintained relationship with God. And yet at the same time, though it was a bloody altar, it was an altar of joy and praise. But now, Joel calls them to wail before that altar. So it's no longer an altar of joy and praise, it's an altar of wailing, an altar of sadness. And he calls them to ceremonial mourning. And not ju- so it's not just any regular old mourning. One must actually pass the night in sackcloth, he says. So the, the breach of the covenant, this, this, this worship crisis, this covenant faithlessness on behalf of the people is so great that it requires more than a simple hour for mourning, repentance, and lament in sackcloth. It requires something unprecedented, something inordinate a wonderful analogy in the history of God's people is the situation with David. After his sin with Bathsheba, he, the prophet Nathan proclaims his judgment upon him and what does David do? He spends several days in sackcloth. He will not eat. He will not drink. His caretakers, his servicemen are, are concerned for him. Something more, something greater is called for because of the emergent circumstances of what David had done. And there's a good reason for this. David, David confesses to Nathan when Nathan says, you are that man. He says, I have sinned. He doesn't go and, and offer a sacrifice. He cannot. There's no provision for his sin in the, in the tabernacle system, for he has committed a sin with a high hand. The only thing that he can do is petition God's mercy and lament in sackcloth with a contrite heart. And this is why Joel calls for such extreme mourning. The grain and the drink offering are withheld from the house of their God. They are not pleasing in his sight. They can't do anything to remedy this issue. And what are these grain and drink offerings? Why call attention to these in particular? Well, these were the offerings that consisted in a meal that God would consume by fire and it would produce a, a sweet aroma that would arise up to God and that, and, and that the people themselves would then partake of this meal. And what it symbolized was favor with God. It expressed and represented the people themselves as favorable with the result of blessing when offered properly. The imagery here is that this sweet aroma would arise to God. It would smell sweet in the nose of God. And it represented the people themselves as sweet and pleasing to his senses. But it also did more than this. It oftentimes conveyed the expiation of wrath, the removing of the guilt that was owed. In Deuteronomy, these offerings are associated then with the joy that the people should have, and that makes plenty of sense. If this offering represents me to God as pleasing and deals with the guilt that I owe, owe, the debt that I owe, I would enter his courts with thanksgiving. I would be joyful. So yes, indeed, there is an emergent reason to call the priest to lament this way, The people have no reason to take joy but every reason to be in a state of wailing, in a state of extreme lamentation. They cannot be seen as pleasing in God's sight, receive blessing from him, or as it were, dine in this covenantal offering and meal of meat and food and drink. There is no fellowship meal with the Lord, and so Joel summons calls the priest to summon all of the people and consecrate a fast. Now, it's not just any kind of fast, but a sacred assembly that fasts. Notice the language of verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Call or summon a solemn assembly. So this is a covenantal fast, a covenantal sacred assembly that the elders and all the people were summoned to. And it's in this assembly also that the people, having been called, would cease from their work. So this is this is Extraordinary. And so for Joel, and what he's calling the people to, what this expresses is that man does not live by bread alone, but primarily by communion with God. Instead of working the land that is barren in the middle of a food shortage, post-locust invasion, he calls for fasting and cessation from work because there's something more pressing. The barrenness of the land. The barrenness of Israel's worship. And here they are summoned to the house of God, into his courts to call out to the Lord their God. And so their lament and their cries then must be commensurate to or reflective of the destruction that they face and they are thus brought to the one who actually has the ability to deliver. Nothing else can be done. This way it reflects a greater crisis. The worship crisis, the communion crisis, Joel's calls reflect the reality that what's far more important is that things aren't okay with the man upstairs as it's represented by the barrenness of the land, by the cessation of the drink and the grain offering. And so he says, get into the house of God. You have a crisis on your hands." Now, this command to consecrate a fast by the priests and the assembly of the people is actually adhered to in verse 15 to 18, and we get the people's response. They cry out. In verse 15, they say, Alas, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Now, the language that the people take upon their lips here is fairly interesting in Hebrew the, the the words that they use for destruction and the Almighty is actually a play it's a pun. It conveys what it really conveys is not the destroyer uh, the destruction of the Almighty but the destroying of the destroyer. So they take this historical covenantal name of God associated with the patriarchs El Shaddai God Almighty and they associate it with powerful destruction. This was formerly the name that was associated with extreme protection, deliverance, safety. Psalm 91, for instance, where the psalmist confesses, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High God will rest in the shade, the shadow, the protection of the Almighty. But here in this passage, that that very name is associated with destruction. The God, the help of ages past is turned then into a negative expression for dread and alarm, spelling not only disaster for foreign nations, but also for the people of God. It associates that name actually with the destruction of the day of the Lord when God rides out in powerful judgment against the nations from up on his mountain. Which is quite interesting because this name, El Shaddai, is associated in ancient, ancient Near Eastern literature and uh, as a reference to a big and mighty mountain. So the mountain himself, the mountain of destruction, will ride out against the wicked. They indicate that this will happen on that day. And that day is coming. It's near, and they document in these verses how it's arriving in like form against them. Those who know this ancient name of God Almighty, El Shaddai. And what they go on to confess is that what they've been enduring is prefigured or is a prefigured day of wrath, day of the Lord-like event. God's riding out and cleansing of his own house. And they note that the food is cut off from before our very eyes. Not only this, before our very eyes is cut off uh, joy and gladness from the house of our God. So they actually are recognizing what Joel expressed in verse 13 when he said the grain and the the drink offering were cut off. And there Joel said, they're cut off from the house of your God and here now the people take upon their lips the name of our God. Joy and gladness is cut off from the house of our God, the people confess. Because there is no offering. There is no joy and gladness. And notice in verse 16, the stress is placed on the second clause here. What's more important to them isn't the fact that what's right in front of their faces is cut off, but that joy and gladness is empty and withheld from the house of their God. They rightly reflect what's more important to them. It's not the food and the drink. It's the joy and gladness in the house of God. In verse 17, the oncoming day of the Lord-like judgment the people are experiencing is expressed further. The the seed shrivels under the clods. This expression is explaining that, that in dry seasons they had special shovels that they would use to dig under the dirt and check the seed to see whether or not it had germinated, whether or not it had sprouted. While things are so bad in the land that the seed hasn't even germinated in the in the in the dirt as a result the, the storehouses for food the silos they're empty the granaries they're torn down we don't need them the grain has dried up and what's being indicated in these verses at this point is that the day of judgment the day of the lord like event that they're experiencing has gone beyond the locust swarm and has actually taken a turn for the worst not only did the, did the locust come, but actually now we're in a drought. And it's not any kind of drought, but it's a drought that is so bad, so devastating, that in verse 18, there is not even food for the animals, the herds, the cattle, or the sheep. In verse 19, as one would expect in a hot land during a drought, fire breaks out, consuming the open plains, so that the whole entire land is desolate. Everything is gone. In verse 20, because even the open plains have no vegetation or trees due to fire, and the brooks have dried up, even the wild beasts of the field are affected. And so in these verses, there is then an implicit indictment on that, that the people uh, and Joel bring to themselves. The cattle, the sheep, even the wild beasts of the field are groaning for God. All of creation is panting after God. And so the indictment and the implication here is that if the beasts and the cattle and the sheep cry out for the devastation that is, has swept its way through the land in fire, locust, and, and drought, then surely we shall too. And woe upon us for not having done so sooner. So they're recognizing the complete and total, utter devastation that has swept through the land as God's covenant sanction for the people turned from locust to drought to firestorm, ransacking the land. And the point here is that the people have eyes that have been opened and witnessed plainly the calamity that they've experienced for faithlessness as judgment against them in a day of the Lord-like event. They recognize it for what it is. These are all things that were promised in Deuteronomy for their failure. Drought, fire, locust. This is what happens when God opens eyes then to our wickedness isn't it We're utterly shocked by it by the calamity by how blind we've been by how faithless we've been that even animals recognize what's going on even they are panting after God even they are panting after renewal There's horror how could we miss it So what happens what do we do what happens when God opens our eyes in this way? The people cry out. And they cry out because no offering is left to be made that can atone for these transgressions. Nothing left can be done like David, after Nathan reveals to him his sin, can only do one thing I have sinned. Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions. This is what Joel, exercising his role as a corporate figure, is doing then in a similar way to David. He calls out on behalf of the people. To you, O Lord, I call. Nothing left is to be offered. It's all that can be done. When we look around us, there is no recourse to anyone else. To you, O Lord, we call, and upon you alone we depend. Nothing else can remedy the barrenness that is swept through the land. An apt picture for how destitute we are of any, any reception of grace. Nothing we can do. Nothing to thy cross we can bring. And we see the purpose of all of this calamity. The Lord brought calamity upon them to draw them back to himself. And this, of course, was reflected in the covenant ordeal in Deuteronomy 28 to 32. God promised that their failure would be corrected by his judgment so that they would be brought back to himself. So the whole point of everything that they've endured was to open their eyes and lead them to repentance. Repentance. That's why God brought judgment upon his people in the Old Covenant. That's made expressly clear in, this, in the way that Joel moves immediately from description of judgment to a call to repentance. The people themselves then recognize this by acknowledging that the day of the Lord was drawing nigh upon them. And it's interesting then to me that the fix, this is marvelous, the fix for an unfit, wicked people who have dishonored God who are unpleasing in his sight, is to go to the very house of God who at present they are not pleasing to. Is is that not demonstrative of the grace of God for his people? Of his patience? That instead of cutting them off in ultimate day of the Lord judgment, he sends previews of it to draw them to his very own house? And this raises the question, on on what basis can this be possible? Why can he do this? If his people are faithless, why can he dispense judgment, technically speaking, judgment grace, to call the people back to himself? Because their faithlessness and their failures to the terms of the covenant were always intended to point to another, a greater prophet. A greater greater prophet who would come, this Jesus whom you crucified. Because the judgment they endured was always intended to be a picture of the way that Christ would be cut off for them. They can be forgiven and welcomed back to the house of the Lord then, not on the basis of the Mosaic Covenant, which had no provision for the sins with a high hand that they had committed hitherto. They can be welcomed back in on the basis of God's mercy in Christ. And so Christ answers the insufficiency of the people. He serves as the reason for the reality that when no one else can deliver, God will deliver by calling his people back into his courts on the back of Christ's merit and the back of his grace. And how did Christ deliver? By his perfect death and glorious resurrection, which enabled him to act as a perfect priest and messenger for the people. The perfect prophet and priest. And so he acts even in this day as a messenger, giving the word, opening eyes and calling to repentance. He acts as priest now, giving the perfect sacrifice so that the work is complete and so that his people are pleasing before the Lord. So now it's appropriate for there to be a sacred assembly that's called because the work is done. There's nothing left for you to do. So the result of all of this is that there will never be for the people of God a true day of the Lord-like event where they're judged among the wicked. Not even a prefigured day of the Lord-like event that the people of, the people of Judah suffered. The new covenant is, of course, better. We don't experience judgments like these for the failures to the Mosaic law. In fact, quite the opposite. We have every spirit blessing now because of and in uh, because of the work of Christ in spite of our own sinfulness and our own detestable nature so we don't receive the curses of the covenant to call us back to repentance we receive something else instead the gentle tender loving care of our father And he calls us to repent through the preached and taught word from Christ and about Christ. So even though we are unworthy by our own just deserts, because of Christ, he shines his favor down upon us so that his presence and his favor never depart from us. Our favor with him, unlike Judah, never diminishes because the offering was once and for all enough to earn perfect, perpetual favor, blessedness, and approval in God's sight. So guess what? The joy and the gladness that ceased for them because the offering was cut off and that as such called for fasting and lamentation from the people doesn't happen for us what does happen instead Christ our Christ our perfect priest consecrates a feast he consecrates a special assembly not with a fast but with a feast of bread and wine And the reality is that sometimes we do veer and we do require something more than a normal preached word in the reading of the law to call us to repentance. Because we are wayward. So instead of bringing harsh judgments and day of the Lord-like events, do you know what he brings? The gentle, tender, loving, careful hands of the shepherds of his flock to discipline wayward sheep. It's not unloving discipline it's not something that we have to tremble before and cower before in fear because there's nothing to eat because there's a drought firestorms and locust swarms he calls godly men that he has raised up and ordained for the purpose of loving and looking after his flock to come after you and call you to repentance So when the church disciplines, it has one purpose, repentance. Try that on for size compared to firestorms, drought, and locust swarms. In addition addition to this, we also know that the Lord chastises those whom he loves so that your eyes in in his ordinary and loving providence over your life so that your eyes may be opened to your sin, and so that he might lull your heart in greater measure to himself. And so what should you do? How blind I've been. Confess, acknowledge, cry out for mercy, knowing that the perfect sacrifice has been given and you are pleasing in his sight. Confess with joy and gladness. When God opens eyes with harsh judgment, he does it for a purpose, to call back into his house so that his people avoid being cut off in that day of the Lord. He opens the eyes of his people that they might repent and call on him, and in him, in Christ, they receive that answer. He opens eyes so that his people might once again come into his house with joy and praise because they are pleasing in God's sight. And so the ultimate answer that his people receive is in him whose blood speaks a good word. A better word than a locust oracle. The more that Joel called for in the fasting and sackcloth in that emergent state was answered in the lamb who was slain for our sake that we might enter his gates with joy and thanksgiving. Here even now. And the ultimate answer that his people receive is in him who makes them perpetually pleasing so that they can enter his house, not for a consecrated fast that he calls and summons them to, but for a consecrated feast. So the grace of God in calling us back to himself is reason for joy and praise. But the abundant feast that he calls us to when we enter his courts, as those pleasing in his sight, is also reason for joy and praise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are pleasing in your sight. And we ask now that you would continue to open our eyes to our sin, that we would not be reticent or stubborn to come to you, but we recognize that you are gentle and lowly of heart, and that we may come to you in joy and praise, knowing that you do indeed forgive all of our sins, and welcome us to feast on Christ. This we ask in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.